want to welcome everyone to the LSE's online events platform. My name is Peter Tribowitz. I'm a professor in the International Relations Department and director of the U.S. Center at the LSE, which is hosting today's presentation. Today's lecture is the first in this year's Fallon Family Lecture Series, which is made possible by the generosity of the John and Amy Fallon Foundation. And I want to thank John and Amy for their continuing support. It allows us to bring high quality public events like the one today to you. We are thrilled to have Professors Ann Case and Sir Angus Deaton on the platform with us today. We originally scheduled in a brick and mortar event last year to have them talk about their new book, Deaths of Despair and the Future of Capitalism. But like everything else, it was uh, disrupted by the pandemic. So I'm very pleased that they have agreed to join us online to kick off the new academic year at the LSE. I think most of you know who they are briefly, and Case is the Alexander Stewart, 1886 Professor of Economics and Public Affairs Emeritus at Princeton University, where she is the Director of the Research Program in Development Studies. Professor Case has written extensively on health over the life cycle. She has been awarded the Kenneth Arrow Prize in Health Economics from the International Health Economics Association for her work on the links between economic status and health status in childhood, and the Cozzarelli Prize from the Proceedings of the National Academy of Sciences for her research on midlife morbidity and mortality. Sir Angus Deaton is a senior scholar and the Dwight D. Eisenhower Professor of Economics and International Affairs Emeritus at the Woodrow Wilson School of Public and International Affairs in the Economics Department at Princeton University. A former president of the American Economic Association, he was also the 2015 recipient of the Nobel Prize in Economics. His research areas run the gamut from issues of poverty, inequality, health, well-being, and economic development. Before we begin, let me say a few words about today's format. We will start with Ann and Angus's presentation, which they will be doing tag team online here. Uh, and that will run for roughly 30 minutes or so. We'll then open it up to questions from all of you in the audience. And you can send your questions to us via the Q&A function on Zoom. I will do my level best to put as many of your questions as possible to Ann and Angus during the discussion period. The Twitter hashtag for today is LSECOVID19. If you are based in the UK and you would like to purchase a copy of their book, you can do so by going to the official LSE Events Independent Bookshop uh, pages of Hackney. You'll find the link on the LSE Events page, which will also be put up at the end of the uh, lecture today. So normally, at this point in the opening, I would ask all of you to put your hands together to give Anne and Angus one of those warm LSE welcomes. That, of course, is not possible today, but I know many of you are, have eagerly anticipated this event. So in lieu of applause, I encourage you to pose questions to them in the Q&A period. Anne and Angus, welcome to LSE's online platform. It's really great to have you with us today. The platform is yours. Thank you. Thank you so much, Peter. And we feel warmly welcomed at the LSE. And we were just so sorry we couldn't be there in person, but we really appreciate the invitation. 
Uh, we flipped a coin, and I'm going to do the presentation, and then Angus is going to weigh in whenever he feels like it. That's kind of how this goes. Okay. <laughs> um, Great. Uh, I'm going to uh, go right to our screen here. Whoops. Uh, uh, we are going to be talking about our new book, Deaths of Despair and the Future of Capitalism, which grew out of a series of papers that we've been writing for about five years now. And we wanted to acknowledge, uh, gratefully acknowledge the funding we've received from the National Institutes of Health for this work. Um, kind of an overview would be that even before the arrival of COVID-19, the lives of Americans without a bachelor's degree were coming apart in the US. And that's two thirds of the population between the ages of 25 and 64. And in the book, what we do is document what that means in terms of despair and excess mortality. And then we dig and we try to, uh, to discuss the long run forces that we think are behind this. Um, just to put this in perspective, uh, over the course of the, of the 20th century, there was tremendous um, improvement in health and longevity. And the picture you're looking at here is the all-cause mortality rate, which are deaths per 100,000 people at risk. And all the mortality rates we show you are going to be that today. You can just think about this as the risk of dying. And this is for uh, white men and women ages 45 to 54. And you can see the rate fell from about 1,500 to 400 per 100,000 over the course of the century. And note, this is the last big global pandemic. This was the flu epidemic in 1918. Um, we thought that kind of progress was just going to continue without end. And if you look at what's happened, now this is again for people age 45 to 54, I could show you this for other age groups, similar things happening. Um, mortality progress continued in the other rich countries of the world, the European countries and the English-speaking countries. But when you look at what happened in the U.S., something somewhat startling happened. For white non-Hispanics, who looked a lot like Germans uh, until the mid-1990s, left the herd and their mortality rates started to rise. That didn't happen for Hispanics, which look a lot like Brits. Um, over this period. And for African Americans, whose mortality rates were and continue to be higher than whites, their mortality rate was falling at an even faster clip than what you find for other countries at 2.6% a year. So we started to drill down into this group, the, the whites, because they were the group that didn't look like the others, that something odd was happening. Now, is this a big deal or a little deal? Well, it's a big enough deal that life expectancy in the US fell for three years in a row. And that hadn't happened since that 1918 flu epidemic. And the mortality there here now has been driven by what's been happening to mortality among prime age adults, rather than the elderly or the young, both of whom are doing very well. Um, when we looked at this, we realized that part of what was happening was that we made great progress against heart disease in the 20th century, both because of medical advance, uh, cheap, effective antihypertensives came on the market, and because of behavioral change. People stopped smoking in big numbers. 
but for reasons that are not fully understood, our heart disease mortality progress slowed and then flatlined. So there wasn't something that was propelling those rates down. And at the same time, what we found was that there were rates going up for three important causes. And those were for drug overdose, for suicide, and for alcoholic liver disease and cirrhosis. Um, now I've split the screen here between people with and without a bachelor's degree, a four-year degree. We started there because education is on the U.S. death certificate starting around 1990. We don't know people's income, their wealth. We don't know what occupation they were in, but we do have their education. And uh, for people in midlife, the fraction with a BA changed very little, um, starting with the birth cohort of 1945. So it's not as if selection into this group is driving things. Um, we tend to bin these together, suicide, drugs, and alcohol, in part because it's hard for the medical examiners sometimes to know whether something was intentional, but also because we think all three of these things show a, a fair amount of despair. And you can see that they've risen dramatically for this age group, age 50 to 54, but they've actually changed dramatically for every five-year age group from 25 to 29 year olds up here in the upper left corner, 60 to 64 in the middle right corner. We had been hoping that when people got to retirement age in the US, which meant they were eligible for Medicare, um, so medical insurance was not an issue, and they would be getting their social security, their, their state pensions, that uh, perhaps this would turn around. But unfortunately, among the newly elderly, what we're finding is that people are taking their dysfunctions with them. Now, there were 158,000 deaths from drugs, alcohol, and suicide in 2018, which is the last year for which we've got full data. That's up from 65,000 in 1995. It's not as many deaths as the deaths from COVID now in the US, which are 205,000, but it's in the same kind of ballpark. But this epidemic that we're talking about today had been happening invisibly below the radar screen. We think largely because it was happening to people with less than a college degree. Um, one way that we started to look at this, which turned out to be incredibly productive, instead of looking at age group, we decided to look by birth cohort. So we can look at the risk of dying one of these deaths of despair, say for the cohort born in 1945, where the rate is fairly low and fairly flat over the period that we see them. But between 1945 cohort and the people born in 1950, at any given age, the people born later are at higher risk. So if you look at people, say, at age in their uh, mid to late 40s, the people born in 55 are at higher risk than the people born in 50. The people born in 65 at much higher risk and the people born in 70 at higher risk still. So this isn't just a baby boomer problem that's going to go away when the baby boomers exit stage right, thank you very much, you're out of here. It's looking worse and worse for these younger, these later born birth cohorts. Um, 
This is for what happens to people without a bachelor's degree. If you compare it to people with a bachelor's degree, it looks like they, they live in different universes. There is a little increase here for these uh, later born birth cohorts with a BA, but it's nothing relative to what we see for people without a bachelor's degree. Uh, our, our work took us all the way back to Durkheim and his work on suicide. And he's, he wrote about the importance of social integration and uh, posited that suicide would be more likely at times of great upheaval. And we think that uh, really speaks to what's happening today. What do we know about these people who are dying in the US? Well, they're geographically widespread. In every US state, there were increases in all three of these causes of death between 2000 and 2018. So it's not just the Rust Belt, or it's not just the Deep South, it's happening everywhere. And it's also happening for men and women. A lot of headline writers will write about white men dying. And I think that's because they can't imagine that women would kill themselves in these ways. And if you go back far enough in the day, women didn't particularly kill themselves in these ways. But for women with less than a bachelor's degree, they kept pace for, with men without a bachelor's degree over this period. Oh, this is so I remind myself to ask you, do you see the Great Recession in this picture, the financial crisis of 2008? Because what we, what we see here is that these deaths were rising before it, they were rising during it, and they rose after it. Does that help us understand what will happen with COVID? We don't know yet. It's too early to know. But one thing is for sure that when we dug into the data, what we saw was it wasn't concurrent economic conditions that were driving this. It seems much older and deeper than the current unemployment rate or current income. And it's not, as, it's not just among people who are in poverty. People without a BA go fairly deep into the distribution. And this is happening for people, for example, with a two-year um, uh, um, associate's degree beyond high school as well. Underneath this mortality count in the book, we document the increase in pain and social isolation and poor mental health that's happening for those without a bachelor's degree. Now those things, pain, feeling socially isolated, poor mental health, those are self-reported. So they're easier to dismiss, but when combined with these increases in mortality, they fit into a larger picture. Now, what are the roots of this? We, we, we pin this all the way back to the long-term labor market decline in the US for people without a BA. If you look at men aged 25 to 54 with less than a four-year degree, what you find is the median wage, so this is at the 50% mark of the distribution, the long-term decline of that is pretty stunning. Uh, there are uh, swings up uh, with the business cycle. This, this increase here uh, after about 2012 got a lot of attention. Yes, wages are rising for people without a BA but they're nowhere near what they had been in 2000 or 1990 or 1980. And with that came a reduction in, in attachment to the labor market, that the employment relative population for these men fell 
Um, it falls during a recession. These are the little red lines um, mark recession years. People go back to work, but then another recession hits. It falls again. Uh, people go back to work, but this ratcheting down, we never get to the same level that we saw for men prior to the last recession. And uh, with COVID now, of course, this has gone um, off the charts in a negative direction. Um, within a job, uh, there's little wage change. So loss of wages and lower labor force participation come from losing jobs and replacing them. And a lot of the jobs available now are worse jobs. They're outsourced jobs in transport and security and food services. There's a lot less commitment between the Albright Cleaning Company and its employees than there might have been between, say, a large hotel chain when those cleaners belong to the hotel chain. These jobs have less meaning. It's harder to see them as part of a good life. They don't feel like they, well, people feel they don't belong to a large company. And uh, if you look at, for example, who works in Amazon fulfillment centers, there's a big distinction between the integrity staffing solutions, which provides temporary workers versus Amazon employees. They work side by side, but their badges are of different color and uh, their benefits and uh, their, their job security are very different as well. Um, we see this less as a loss of material well-being and more of a loss of meaning and status that comes with work. Uh, people without a bachelor's degree, if they, they don't have a good job, men and women both, feel they can't get married. So marriage rates fell dramatically for people without a BA. They, they cohabit, but in the U.S., those cohabitations are very fragile, what Andrew Cherland calls brittle. Um, and uh, they might have a, a child together, they split up, the man may lose uh, contact with his children from previous relationships, but then the pillars that held life up, work, family life, community, are all eroding. And we find parallels to what happened to the African-American community in the late 1960s and the 1970s when manufacturing left the inner cities. And at that point, that's when marriage rates fell. That's when out-of-wedlock childbearing increased. They were hit by a crack epidemic. Today, we're hit with an opioid epidemic. Um, now, globalization and automation have hit other rich countries. Why haven't they seen deaths of despair increase? What's different about the US? And we point to a couple of things, opioids and the US healthcare system. So a lot's been written about opioids and the fact that the US allowed heroin and pill form with an FDA label on it to be widely distributed in the US, whereas countries of Europe are much more cautious in their distribution of heavy duty opioids. The despair preceded the opioids. Uh, mortality rates were rising before the arrival of Oxycontin in 1996. But this crisis, the opioid crisis, uh, the whole crisis is much more horrific after the arrival and easy distribution of these drugs. Opioids landed on fertile soil for abuse and Big Pharma targeted despair. They actually decided where to send their marketers based on education, based on uh, long-term declines in uh, life. 
Uh, what else is different about the U.S.? Well, the U.S. has the most expensive healthcare system in the world, but on many metrics, it has the worst health in the, in the rich world. We argue in the book that life expectancy fell not in spite of what we spend on healthcare in the U.S., but because of what we spend on healthcare. And if you want to get a sense of just how different the U.S. is from other countries, using data from our world and data, if you look at life expectancy at birth and health expenditure per person in the UK from 1970 in the lower left here up to 2015, you can see life expectancy rising and health care expenditures rising. Australia looks very similar. Canada a little more expensive, but very similar. France is right in the same neighborhood. Switzerland is more expensive. They live five years longer than the US, the Swiss do. But if you put Americans on here, here's American healthcare spending and life expectancy until 1982. Here's what it looks like by 1990. And this is what it looked like in 2015. So a stunning difference between the US and other countries. Now, why does it, that matter? Well, we in the US spend about $1.05 on healthcare. Switzerland uh, spends the next highest percentage on their health care. That difference between what the U.S. spends and what the Swiss spend as a fraction of GDP is more than a trillion dollars a year. That's more than $8,300 a household. And that's just the excess spending. That's not the total spending. It's half again as much as what the U.S. spends on the military. That has to come from somewhere, and we argue it comes from wages, from profits, from taxes. A lot of people in the U.S., which has this crazy system that ties health insurance to employers, many people think that their employer provided health care as a gift, not realizing that gift is being deducted in part or in whole from what would be their paycheck. We think that the lower wages that we saw when we looked at that long-term decline, much of that can be matched with increasing premia, healthcare premia that the employer has to pay. Employers pay about 71% of a $21,000 a year premium for a family policy. And when they see those bills, a lot of companies decide to outsource those jobs. Um, the premium don't vary much by what a person earns. So a CEO's healthcare premium and, and that of a janitor are going to be incredibly similar. Now in the US, a lot of ink has been uh, spilled on what happens if we increase the minimum wage. Maybe people will lose their jobs as a result of that. But there's been very little discussion on what uh, employers having to pay this amount of money means for jobs and means for wages. And we argue that financing healthcare in this way is taking a wrecking ball to the low-skilled labor market in the US. State governments who have to pay their share of Medicaid, which is medical spending for people in poverty, well, in order to pay their share, they have to cut back on things like the one once great state university systems in the US because they don't have the money to fund those. They have to increase tuitions Whereas in, in a previous generation, poor kids could go to state universities, get a good education, and uh, participate in what is now a labor force that is uh, where the deck is stacked in their favor. 
Um, what do we do about this? In the book, we talk about the future of capitalism, not its failure. We think it needs to be fixed. It needs to be made fairer. We think healthcare reform is central to that. Uh, but there are five lobbyists, healthcare lobbyists, for every member of Congress. This is a really rich industry. It's going to do everything it can to protect itself against change. More generally, corporate lobbying in the US and the decline of unions has left very little representation for less skilled workers in Washington. And as the old adage goes, if you're not at the table, you are on the menu. So on that happy note, um, that is uh, where we will stop and we'd be delighted to take questions. Well, that was great. Um... Uh, thanks um, very much for uh, that kind of tour of the book and kind of summarizing it you know, so concisely. I'm sure that uh, I can I can see that some questions are actually starting to show up in the in the Q and A, and it looks like we have about 350 plus on the platform. Um, while those questions um, come in. Um, I have some of my own. I have questions about healthcare. I have questions about education. I've, I've got a question about, about COVID. But I actually want to start with, um, I think one of the most um, interesting turns in the book is the, um, the turn to Durkheim. Um, one wouldn't normally expect economists to go there, maybe, um, and, um, and it, it does, um, you know, and in particular, Durkheim's theory of suicide, the loss of community, which it seems to me you're arguing, if I understand it correctly, that in addition to access to health care and education has contributed significantly to the deaths and despair that you document. And what I, I'd like to get you to say a bit more about this and, and, and maybe push you a little bit and specifically what steps um, America might um, take to address this, this dimension of the problem because this, this side of it is local, it's community. I mean, where, where should the emphasis be? Should it be on rebuilding labor unions, investing in small businesses? Should we, should there be a, a WPA style infrastructure initiative, which is targeting communities that have seen their, their factories boarded up and disappear to China and elsewhere? I mean, where does one start on this community side of the problem that you've done such a nice job in, in identifying? Let me have a go at that. Um, just let me, first of all, clear away um, something you said that I, is not quite right, which is access to healthcare. Okay. So people talk about access to healthcare at all. This is not an access to healthcare problem. Um, the problem with the healthcare system, I mean, it's a terrible thing that 20 million people are not covered. And it's a terrible thing that during a pandemic that it's tied to employment. Mm -hmm. However, <laughs> It's the cost of the healthcare that's screwing up everything um, much more. And just let me reiterate something Anne said, which is the waste in the system, the bit that is just down the drain, 
though it's not down the drain for the people who get the rents, um, is 50% more than the total amount we spend on our military, mm -hmm. which is a frequent target of um, people on the left and, and so on. So you, you're right though, the Durkheim thing, there's a new book by uh, Michael Sandel at Harvard um, sure. came out last week um, about the tyranny of the meritocracy. And there's a fair amount of cross-fertilization between the two books. Um, and he talks about the BA having become this badge of the meritocracy and that without a BA, you don't qualify for good jobs. You don't qualify for a meaningful job and you don't even qualify for social esteem. So this divide mm -hmm. has become this sort of stigma. I mean, in the book, we talk about, you know, having a, a BA on your shirt a red BA with a line through it for the people who don't have it, and you know that those people are of an inferior sort. Um, so th that's the deep thing we think is the problem here. Now, what do you do about it? Well, for one thing, you know, a lot of this working class culture, this meaningful life based on good jobs and good communities, mm -hmm. it's not just that it's gone away because of globalization and technical change, though that's certainly part of it. It's also gone away because we're making it incredibly expensive for employers to hire these people um, by, you know, the healthcare premium for any worker is now between 10 and $20,000 a year. And an employer can shed that by sending people off to work for a labor company, but then it deprives meaning of their lives. Um, we talk about rebuilding unions. We'd love to see more unions in the private sector. But it's not as much a, we could, if we stop persecuting, <laughs> that would be a really good court, a really good start. And, you know, the legal system all the way up to the Supreme Court, you know, influenced by Chicago economics, by, you know, the law and economics movement of Posner and Friedman and so on, and, and um, Coase, you know, has come to the point where unions are just seen as an, as an obstruction to efficiency. Mm -hmm. <laughs> And, you know, the Janus Clause, you know, all these local so-called right-to-work laws, which have made it difficult. So there's been a tremendous amount of it, it, unions didn't fall apart just, because, just by themselves. They fell apart from a concentrated assault um, from one side. You asked about infrastructure. That seems like a really good idea. But, you know, no one's ever gotten around to delivering on it. But we're going to have to do something on that sooner or later. I, I, in addition to the fact that healthcare reform, which is going to be an incredibly heavy lift, right. there has to be education reform. Right now we're focusing all our attention in K-12 education on the minority of students who are college bound. And if you're not college bound, you're not getting a skill set that allows you to go out and get a good job, a job with uh, benefits, a job with that will serve you and be a stepping stone to better jobs as you move up. So I think that we've reached a point where we need to be looking at other countries and other ways of, of certifying people coming out of high school uh, to allow them to participate in, in the labor market going forward. So something along the lines of Germany's apprenticeship system. Is that the kind of thing that you have in mind? Yeah. Something yeah. like that. Yeah. Now, I mean, it's going to have to be an American solution, but yes. You need yeah. a richer menu of routes to occupations that carry esteem. 
I, I, I like that idea. I'm wondering what you think kind of, I mean, what do you see practically, politically? Do you see the space open for that, that, that Democrats could move, that a Biden administration could move in that direction, or that, you know, Republicans would be open to that? Um, I think Republicans would be open to it. Every time I talk to CEOs, for instance, they're always complaining about what the college system is training is they're not what they need. And there have been some experimental useful partnerships, for instance, in Chicago, in which junior colleges and they have transferable credits and the employers pay for the education. And, you know, there's things like that that could be done. But we have to break this stranglehold of esteem that comes with the, B, the BA sort of idea. Yeah. So look, we've got a num- there's a number of questions that have come in. They're all over the place, you know, really sure. interesting and different. Um, one question, I think actually, um, so the question is from, actually it's, it's an LSC visitor, a Princeton alum. Perfect. Um, his name is Tech uh, Sien Ho. Um, now, he asked this question. I'm going to put a spin on it afterwards because um, I want to connect it to COVID. While the 2008 Great Recession did not appear, the 2008 recession did not appear to be a trigger, which you point out, it appears to have excel- accelerated um, things. Um, and in fact, he looking at the figure, he senses that things really began to accelerate post-2001. Have you investigated whether there was a key event in 2001 that would have caused this trigger, 9-11, or some social political trigger? And I suppose just kind of more broadly, because I, I, I think anyone looking at your figures would be, that, the, that figure would be struck by, you don't see like a step function, a step change with 2008. Arguably, it accelerates, but it, you know, it's going up. It's a secular trend. That one yeah. yeah. So the I think the obvious question um, is a COVID question, which is, is that what we're going to see? Is that what we are seeing, and what we should expect, <coughs> or should we anticipate something different? And let me just put a, just a tweak on this, since it seems to be the African American community that is being affected disproportionately by COVID. Um, so that's a lot. I think the general point here is about the trend versus these kind of interventions, these big kind of financial economic interventions. Well, there's one key date that Anne didn't really talk about, which is the approval of OxyContin in 1996 when the FDA, and that triggered a slow rolling expansion of prescriptions. Um, And those prescriptions caused addiction. And it's one of the great scandals of modern America that these drug companies, and including particularly um, the Sacklers at um, Purdue Pharmaceutical, um, who basically were allowed to get, make billions and billions. I think the recent estimates are something like $15 billion for the family out of addicting and killing people. Um, So this took time um, because doctors previously were not used to prescribing heroin with an FDA label on it for pain. And then it turned out their patients really liked it or some of them really did. And you got this slow rolling thing. So the the drugs are the biggest part of deaths of despair. But they were all going up. 
but they were all going up. And also, what's more is that, you know, if you think it's just a drug crisis, which we would resist, you have to explain why it only happens to people without a BA, you know. Um, it's, it's also interesting, Vicodin, which is, has a morphine a milligram equivalent of one, uh, which so it's less powerful than Oxycontin, but it's very powerful. That was one of the best-selling drugs in America in the late 1980s and the 1990s, but its presence didn't uh, trigger um, an epidemic. So there was something about the drugs were there at the time when people were in despair wow. that caused that. Um, and also, the, the figure I showed you was just for one uh, um, age group. Like in general, what we see is this slow, steady increase. And, what, and there's no real tipping point at 2008. It's, it's so, but to come on to the, you know, oh, how you take you from that into COVID, yeah, right? Yeah, so the press is very keen to say, you know, um, COVID is causing drug deaths, drug overdoses to go up, and there's going to be a huge increase in drug deaths. There was a slight decrease in 2019 um, compared with 2018. Um, sorry, in 2018 compared with 2017. So, but it's pretty clear we have we will not have the data on these, let alone the educational qualification of these deaths, for maybe another year and a half. So, a lot of this is there was a piece in the New York Times two days ago, which said, you know, epidemic propelling drug deaths, and then there was a story of four people who died <laughs> yeah, um, with their backstories, and that was great. But it, so it's we have some leading indicators. We know stuff about people coming to emergency room for overdoses, and they're going up, but they were going up before the pandemic. So they were going up, and the, it's not clear that the pandemic has very much to do with this. So, so I, you know, we're quite open to the possibility that it will, right. um, but it's not, it's not clear in the data as yet. But for us, it's hard because there will, with luck, be a vaccine or certainly treatments for COVID but there's not going to be a vaccine for deaths from these causes that we're talking about. So there's no reason to expect that these things are some magically going to start to level off or fall unless we make real change. Now the African-American component of this is very mm -hmm. important too, because when we wrote our first paper, we only had data up to 2013. And if you look at deaths before that, this was all white non-Hispanics rising. Now, as Anne said during the presentation, it's very, very important. Um, blacks have higher mortality rates than whites, um, always have had as far as we go back data. But those death rates have been falling quite rapidly, and there's been quite a convergence from blacks to whites, though always higher. Mm -hmm. They've never crossed. Um, so then what happened was after we wrote our first paper, and we knew this by the time we wrote the second paper, and certainly it's in the book, um, after 2013, um, fentanyl and other illegal drugs as a sort of second wave of the opioid problem had moved into inner cities and were beginning to kill African-Americans too. So you can see that the black decline in mortality suddenly starts going the other way after 2013. Wow. And actually adult life expectancy for blacks has been falling since about 2010 or certainly 2013, um, not, 2013 is a safer date. So then we get into COVID, and as you say, 
um, it appears that the mortality rate, infection rate, mortality rate among blacks are about twice as high as among whites. So you could regard that as something different, <laughs> um, or you could regard it as a continuation of what had happened after 2013. Um, I, who knows? It's interesting that Hispanics, which the press again has been widely reporting as having higher infection rates, there is no, there are no data to support that. The CDC has only incomplete counts, but they look like they're exactly on their population percentage for the data we currently have. Among the whites, it's almost certainly true that the COVID will exacerbate what we've got here, because people with BAs are sitting talking to each other on Zoom, as we are here, Right. And people without BAs have a much higher risk of right. uh, either losing their jobs, losing income, or being essential workers and being at risk. Um, so we would expect COVID to widen those pre-existing inequalities among whites um, and also to continue the bad things that have been happening to African Americans. So there's a, a couple of a, a number of other questions that have come in. In fact, with the number just keeps going up here. You've kind of just answered some of this, but maybe um, Tim Klassen asks. So he asks, why haven't rates of deaths of despair also risen? So he's asked about African Americans, and you actually just addressed that. But for Hispanics, why not Hispanics? Let health insurance exposes them to health insurance no, is not know, important here. Okay. Yes, so, anyway, this is the question. Yeah. Resiliency. This is what the what's asking. So that's one question. Okay. Another question, which you also, uh, it seems to me, Angus, you you uh, addressed partly by pointing to the 1990s and um, and pharma. Um, what, the question comes from Lara Bletcher, and she asks. Was privatization considered a real factor in driving these? So this is a, in these trends. I mean, this is a period of deregulation in the United States, right? And this is seems to me you're putting your finger on like just you know a classic example of it, right? So anyway, those are two those questions. Are great questions. Um, one question that is still unanswered is why is it the case of Hispanics who, on average, have less education? Uh, lower income, lower, lower status than whites. Why is it the case that their mortality rates have always been lower than whites, right? We don't have a good answer to that. Mm. And without a good answer to that, um, we can give you a just so answer to why they haven't fallen to um, uh, deaths of despair, which would be exactly along the lines that you were suggesting that um, for them, they are doing better probably, a lot of, uh, not them, a lot of Hispanics are doing better than their parents did. They still see hope for the future. They see a country where they can make a life for themselves. So we think that, we think hope is a really big part of the story here and that there's just a lot more hope of, of a better life ahead. In the, in the Hispanic community. Just say add a few words about that. Many of these Hispanics are immigrants, either first or second generation immigrants. So if you think of our story as one of slowly accumulating despair, as people do not meet what their parents had or better than their parents had, a lot of these people were not here for that. <laughs> and so they don't have that, you know, so for them, as Anne said, America is still the land of opportunity. The other thing is it's a mistake to think of white mortality rates as 
being particularly good. <laughs> They've never been particularly good. I mean, Asian Americans have even better, lower mortality rates than Hispanics. Um, immigration itself can face a huge mortality benefit um, just because by immigrating, you have not died in your home country, so you avoided the childhood disease. And there's huge selection towards health um, in immigration. I think we immigrants are likely um, to live for a very long time. Just on re-regulation though, I think it is very important. And I think it's part of this general trend towards capital and away from labor. Mm -hmm. um, and that has made everything worse. Um, and so for instance, the anti-union laws are partly, you could regard them as a form of deregulation but the rules on overtime, the rules on, you know, good behavior companies, all of that sort of deregulation, it's pro-cap, it's nearly all pro-capital and against labor. And, you know, I think that's very much part of the story. Well, you know, maybe just to pick up on that, one of these questions from John Troy, who's an LSE alum, how should the U.S. government deal with big pharma? I mean, you referenced, you talked a little bit about this in the presentation. Uh, given the extent of lobbying and sponsorship of um, senators, I mean, how do you crack this problem? It's very hard. So I'm asking you to be a political scientist here. Yeah. So. I, one thing that we're a, a, a little bit hopeful for is that COVID may make a difference. Huh. That when um, when hundreds of thousands of people have medical bills that they cannot pay, then suddenly they're going to start paying attention to the healthcare industry and the costs associated with it. And it's going to have to be the case that the reform comes not because some people on the far left think it's a good idea. It's going to happen when people in the middle of the distribution think it's a good idea. And this crisis may crack it open, mm. or it may not. And you may have noticed that in the debate before we turned it off last night, which was not <laughs> up there very long, uh, uh, Trump was talking about making insulin as free as water, right? Yeah. So, you know, even he understands that this is really a problem. Right. And remember, we're, we have not gotten into the vaccine phase of this disease yet. And, you know, what happened here in the U.S. is, is the Congress gave the pharma companies billions and billions of dollars to develop these vaccines, but their lobbyists stripped out a provision that would have prevented excessive cost, um, cost charging for them if the vaccine was fine. So it's sort of like we pay for it and you get the profits. If there's a mess at the end of this, you know, with people paying huge sums of money, that could help change things. But it's gotten so bad, it's probably something that you can only change by something very big and bad happening. And this is big and bad, so maybe. Maybe, right. It's like a shock to the system. Um, Daphne Coleman has a question for you. Uh, it's a big question. Um, what do you think is the future uh, of Obamacare and what would you see as the best achievable healthcare system for the U.S.? Let me kind of add to that question. I think no matter what happens, there's a very good chance that no matter what happens with the presidential election, that Obamacare is going to get gutted because of the direction that the Supreme Court is moving. I mean, it's not guaranteed, but it could very well happen. So 
in a sense, we might very well, and if it is a Biden administration, he might find himself in a kind of, you know, like a tabula rasa kind of moment. I mean, he has to go back and start again. So in light of kind of your findings, I mean, where should, you know, the focus be? I mean, you're very careful at the end of the book to not say, I know to everybody in the UK here, the NHS is not necessarily the solution for the United States. But, um, but you don't rule out, uh, on the other hand, um, you know, Medicare for all. Um, you, don't, you don't endorse it. I mean, you're careful there. But I think, you know, given that this is really probably going to come to a head, fairly soon. It would be good to get your thoughts on that. So, yeah, we, we don't. We were very careful not to um, uh, pick any of the possible uh, ways in which the U.S. could move. But any other rich country's um, system works better than ours. Let me say something about Obamacare. I mean, Obamacare was a success in that it brought many, many more, many millions of people coverage, and that's a good thing. But the way it proceeded was basically to buy off all the stakeholders, meaning the pharma companies, the hospitals, the device manufacturers, and everything else. So it got coverage, but at the price of making the cost problem even worse, right? So, you know, as I'm, I'm not quite sure which of the great old health economists first said this, but there's only two things you need for a health system that's going to work. You need cost control um, and you need compulsory enrollment, um, preferably from birth. Um, and basically all the other countries, as Anne said, you know, almost anything will work other than what we have. They all have that in one form or another. So we need something like that. And I think there will be, I mean, this system is so broken, but people have been saying it's broken for 20, 30 years, right. and it just goes on getting worse. Eventually, you know, we cannot devote 20%, 30%, 40% of our GDP forever to a healthcare system that's not delivering very good health. And it's very much better at redistributing money from poor people to rich people than it is at delivering healthcare. So it'll break in the end. So Vic Fuchs, who's kind of the grandfather of health economics, would say, you know, an Amer this is an American problem, it needs an American solution, but here are possible ways forward. So there are people who are working on it, perhaps with a, a public option and a private option, since a lot of Americans don't want to wait in line to get a mammogram or, or to have a knee replaced. So possibly we would go to a system with both um, available within it. Um, but uh, as Angus said, it has to have cost control and compulsory compulsion to participate. Um, okay. Um, here's a question from um, Orsola Torisi, who is an LSE PhD student. I hope I didn't butcher her name, but um, so she says, I'm interested in your point of view on gender differences in mortality due to overdose. Um, um, recent evidence, she says here, shows that there's been a distinctive cyclicality to gender differences. Well, at the beginning, there was a narrowing of male-female differences in drug overdose mortality since 2010. Differences have widened. Do you think this is true across ethnic groups? 
Do you think we will eventually see women again catching up to men? Or do you think there are some protective factors for women which somehow prevent this same kind of spiral or cyclicality? So historically, women did not um, commit suicide or die from alcohol or drugs at the same level as men. Um, but for example, with suicide, uh, the ratio of male to female suicides in the U.S. went from four to one to three to one, both rising um, over the period that we look at from the early 90s through to today. As far as the cyclicality of drug overdoses, I, I don't want to say uh, something I don't know, so that's something that's definitely worth looking at. Yeah, um, remember the, the, um, the increase in drug overdose mortality among African Americans is relatively recent. Um, we've only got data for four or five years, um, and these patterns are changing. But it's very important. I mean, what you said at the end about how do women have something that protects them from this sort of stuff, yeah. um, a lot of people think that. And Anne referred to it in the presentation, you know, press reports of our book, of our work, and indeed a very careful review of our book um, the other day um, said they're documenting drug overdoses among men. You know, and we say over and over and over again that this is lower for women, but the increases have been parallel. So women are not spared, which is why you think it's got to be something to do with the social fabric. You know, it's not just at work. It's, it's something that's affecting family life. And, you know, we haven't talked about it very much, but right from the beginning, um, this idea of, you know, middle-aged families disintegrating or parents in middle age and, you know, who've cohabited several times, who have kids all over the place. They don't know them anymore. Um, for me, you know, thinking about myself in my 50s or even now, if that had happened to me, mm -hmm. my life would be pretty awful. And I'd be very susceptible to some of the things that we talk about in the world. Here's a question from Giovanni Orozco, who's a health economist at Newcastle University. Is it possible to speak of this relation between social conditions and the increase in suicides and the incidence of mental health diseases as a correlation or causation? Can this speak of broader issues such as the depression epidemic or the rising suicide rates around the world? So kind of on the mental health side. So um, when we talk about uh, causation, we don't do it in kind of the narrow way that economists have come to think about causal effects. We think about it more the way historians think about it, which is to look at the forces moving through and um, uh, what they seem to take with them as they move through. Um, on uh, suicides, except for uh, uh, the countries, most countries in the world suicide rates are falling, which is also what makes the US such an outlier where suicide rates are going up. Um, certainly we think that the, uh, the self-reports that give way to diagnoses that people are at risk for serious mental health issues, 
that we think that is part and parcel of, of people being at risk of suicide or being at risk of trying to soothe the beast with drugs or alcohol. So definitely we think those things go together, but uh, we don't try to make um, an argument that this part of it is causal to that part of it. We think there's a lot of causality going on here, but it's all contingent, you know, yeah. and the labor market's not working for these people anymore. Um, the educational system's not working for two-thirds of the population. Um, and, you know, marriage is not working, but those things are all tied together. It's probably true if you fix one part, the other part would be better, but it's cumulative. Um, just on suicides, we keep coming across this. Even in medical journals, people say suicide rates are going up all over the world, but it's not in the data. Huh. Okay. Um, I'm getting a series of questions. There's a series of questions um, that are about the bachelor's degree. And yeah. I mean, you've, you've addressed this, but I guess this is kind of like an inside baseball question, So, which seems to flow from some of these. Um, how did you land on that? I mean, did you go into this project expecting, looking for that as the, it's basically the cut point in this whole thing, right? And it's, it's so, I mean, it's so decisive in, 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 um, in, in the graph. So, uh, you know, did this just emerge through the process of investigation? I mean, maybe you can say something about yeah, that. It, it, as I mentioned, uh, we started with education in part because it is on the death certificate. So that when every year they actually allow uh, researchers to pull down all the records, which uh, makes the U.S. somewhat different from most other countries. And the fact that education is on the death record is different from most European countries. So we had an education in hand, but we did not go into it expecting to find anything. Um, but, and I think that over time what happened was we saw that people with a two-year degree beyond high school looked a lot more like people with just a high school degree or less than they looked like people with a BA. And we decided that we would make that cut at the BA in part, and again, this is inside baseball, in part because there had been movement for people graduating high school and moving into a two-year program. So that we worried a little bit about selection. Maybe the people were different than the people who were getting that kind of a two-year degree 10 or 20 years prior. Whereas with a four-year degree, for reasons, given that the premium, the, the wage premium of having a BA went from 40% above high school to 80% above high school, there should have been this big flow in to people to get a four-year degree. There just hasn't been a flow out. So the fraction getting that BA has been pretty constant, which makes us not have to worry as much about the fact that they look like they're different kinds of people now with a BA than there would have been 20, 30 years ago. For a long time, we carried multiple education categories. For a long time, we carried multiple education categories. So, you know, and, and they do what you might think, which is the BA, beyond, beyond BA does best, um, BA and then, you know, some college. But the, the big divide is that some college looks a lot like a high school degree. And um, so, you know, 
charts always look better if you can split them in two rather than split them in four. <laughs> so um, here's a here's a big question where it picks up on the second part of your the book's title, which you've already kind of partially addressed, but I, it, it gives you another chance to you get a you get to take another bite at the apple. Um, what needs to change in order for capitalism to have a future? So that's, you know, pretty broad. Um, but it, I think, you know, I, I would say that this thread comes through a number of the questions here. There's a question very close to this asking about could, could you know, does this mean subsidizing low paid labor through tax breaks is, you know, just irrelevant, it will have no effect, that we need to have something that is much more programmatic, that's kind of much more Keynesian in, in approach and so forth. Yeah, so um, at the, the broad level is that capitalism in America, and to some extent in Britain too, is working much better for the people at the top than it's working for everybody else. And everybody else is not just you're leaving a little minority behind. These are the two-thirds of the people who don't have a bachelor's degree. And so it's really intolerable to have a system that's only working for a third of the people. Never mind the top 1% or all the stuff that Piketty and people write about, which is in some ways a separate problem. So, you know, if you're on the left, and, and some of our critics on the left have scolded us for not, you know, adopting a full-on socialist um, conclusion, but that's not ours. I mean, we're old enough to remember what socialism used to be like, and we're not terrifically keen on it, nor do we think it would deliver for everyone. Um, so going to the other end of, of sort of policies, you've really got to make life better for ordinary working people. And again, before we get to wage subsidies, you know, Darren S. Moglo, who's written very eloquently about the tax system favoring robots, you know, so if you hire people with a BA and 20 robots, you can get rid of 400 workers in, in your factory and you get tax breaks in addition to this. Um, and, you know, the, the persecution of the unions, for instance, you know, the incredible cost of healthcare and working. So you're wrecking the labor market. So, you know, in Britain, there's been median wages have been stagnant since the financial crisis. So you've got 12 years or so. Here, they've been stagnant since 1970. And so some of the same forces are working there, the forces of globalization, the forces of robots and all the rest of it. But they're much worse here and they're much more encouraged here. And I think that's largely because politics is increasingly controlled by money. And so... You know, we're writing these laws, we're stacking the Supreme Court um, with people who will support capital relative to labor. And, you know, if we go on doing that, there really is going to, we've got half a revolution already, which is what we all saw on television last night. Um, but, um, you know, all of that's going to get worse. Yeah. And while many of us, you know, would give our eye teeth to um, replace our current president, you know, it, it, it's not going to, those problems are not going to be solved by that. Right. Because it's structural. Um, here's a, a, there's a, a number of, a new batch of questions have come in. One is a, is a technical question from Martin Fisher. How closely is having a degree correlated with income? And would the graphs look different 
if you used an income cutoff as opposed to um, a education um, cutoff, um, my sense is those two things are pretty highly correlated. But at any rate, that there's a question there, and. Another question that has to do, uh, this is an interesting, why do you think the UK facing also an opioid crisis, less than the US, but more than continental Europe, um, why it's occurring when healthcare costs are not a cause as they are in the US? So, yeah. so good, uh, good questions. Um, we would use income if we had income in the data, but ah, so. Um, and one of the problems in this whole field is, is there was a paper by Raj Shetty and his colleagues a couple of years ago in JAMA um, that actually managed to get the U.S. Secretary of the Treasury to hand over all the tax records and merge them with the mortality record so you could look at income. But of course, the tax returns don't tell you anything about people's race or about their education or anything of the sort. So a lot of the studies in this field have been either about income or they've been about education. Um, in the few studies that have looked at both, they both seem to exert independent effects, which makes sense. You know, um, there's also the complexity that if you get sick, your income goes down, whereas typically, if you get sick, they don't take away your BA. So there's all sorts of technical problems, um, you know, um, close to that. But our guess is that income and also the fact that education is becoming more important. It's probably in part because the returns to education in terms of income have gone way up. And so if income is exerting an effect of its own, the, the effect of looking just at education is going to get bigger and bigger over time. But, you know, education and income are certainly correlated, but they're not that correlated. The correlation is about 0.4. Mm -hmm. um, and so you certainly, if you had them both, and you had a pretty good idea what you were trying to do by looking at the above. Um, it it's not statistically difficult at all because there's lots of lots of income ranges within education groups mm -hmm. and lots of education ranges within income groups too. So. But on the, on the question of the uh, drug epidemic in the UK, which is serious and, and very important, um, I mean, the, the Scottish drug overdoses look similar to what we see in the U.S., which is stunning because the U.S. is up here and the rest of Europe is down here, but Scotland makes it up to look like the U.S. It's transpiring. Um, but it's, uh, so that is something we are currently at work on, and, but, and we're interested in whether or not, you know, there is the center, there's London, and then, like, what's happening in the rest of England. So we want to look geographically at what's happening out in the other regions of the country and see whether or not, for example, The Guardian had this pretty stunning um, uh, piece on Blackpool, right? And that people go to Blackpool because the rents are low, but they come with their dysfunctions, and that there's a spiral downward in some parts of the country uh, that, that aren't being seen in London. So we, we wrote a piece earlier in the year in Foreign Affairs, mm -hmm. which argued this both ways. That, you <laughs> which know, is always good. Which we always do. We're academics. <laughs> but, you know, one story is the U.S. is in the, what you're looking at in the U.S. is what you're going to get in Britain in due course. You're just behind us, right? Mm -hmm. 
And the other story is you're protected because you don't have this crazy um, association of, of healthcare costs with employment. Um, and you can make both those cases, but I think you're going to get some of it for sure. Mm. So um, here's a question from Jeff Beacon. Um, so he writes, to what extent is education a positional good? You get your children the jobs others won't get, not so much the skills, more the certificates. And, and maybe, you know, I mean, one of the questions it seems to your your research raises is the extent to which this is passed from one generation to the next. You're talking about very broken families and communities. As you yourselves point out, these are often these males, they're divorced, they're, you know, they're on their 10th their girlfriend, they have no relationship with or bad relations with their kids and so forth. And it seems like it's just a, like a, for the family, a downward spiral. I don't know that that's true, but I think this question kind of asks, also points us in that direction of, of how, you know, the extent to which this is actually passed on. Yeah, it's a good question and it's something of great concern. I mean, if you go back, if you think back to the birth cohorts that I showed you and the fact that yeah. this crisis is getting worse, birth cohort to birth cohort, well, the birth cohort of 1970 are the kids of the birth cohort of 1950. You know, uh, right. yeah. And so we've, that kind of dysfunction could accelerate because of that. And we are really, really worried about that. And at the top end, it's the case that you know, with the, with the young idea that, uh, you know, meritocracy is a, is a, a terrible curse. Right. If people at the top are pulling up the ladders behind them, if people at the top are bribing schools in the U.S. to admit their children right. to colleges, um, we're going to see then that the in, intergenerational problems are going to hit and hit hard. Yeah. We could do a lot by getting opioids under control. <laughs> <laughs> Good point. Uh, and I think one of your points. So, but another point that you make, you hammer the doctors pretty good. And, um, uh, you know, and I have no problem with that. I do have three siblings that are, are doctors, but I, they deserve it. So, um, you know, uh, the, the question that's posed here is, how is it possible to empower practicing doctors to report difficulties with medications to regulators? I mean, given the separation between the hospital clinic based on doctors and academic doctors and so forth. So I guess the question is how to incentivize doctors to do yeah, that's, been, that's been pretty well done, actually. So that, um, you know, this is, you know, the, I don't think we hammer the doctors compared with the pharma executives, for and instance, the or the hospitals, or the insurance industry, which shouldn't exist at all or doesn't need to exist. Um, but the doctors clearly played a role in this, and I think a lot of it was carelessness. A lot of it was time pressure. It's much easier to give a pill than to talk to people right. and try to figure out what's wrong with them. But, you know, the tragedy of this is, is the doctors were – I mean, there's some doctors still handing this stuff out like candy. Um, but many states have got reporting systems, um, and, um, and there's been a big pullback. So 
many the, the complaints you hear now are from people who have been on opioids for a long time and the doctor will no longer prescribe them. And so the drug dealers are waiting outside the pain clinics to hand out illegal drugs. And so many people think the second wave, the huge illegal wave of drug dealing, um, which is killing way more people now than prescription drugs, was triggered by the pulling back of the medical profession. So sometimes, you know, we're in, in the days when we could talk to large audiences that were not controlled <laughs> by a moderator, we would get people getting very, very angry with us for having deprived their relative or spouse of the pain medications that they thought they deserved. Wow. But it really is sort of a mess, but it's now largely an illegal epidemic. And so dealing with the doctors, as far as the epidemic is concerned, is sort of bolting um, the door after the horses left. There is a sense in which doctors are overpaid. That's true in Britain too. The, the doctors have a lot more control over their salaries than perhaps they ought to. Um, if we look in the mirror or look in the Zoom, you'll see other people who are probably pretty overpaid relative to what we expected when we started out in this life <laughs> as academic. And, you know, this is symptomatic of a lot of educated people who've lined their own pockets very well yeah. at the expense of ordinary people. It's also one of the reasons why education, VAs have not been increasing because colleges and universities have become astronomically expensive compared to what they used to be. There's a question here that um, it's about robotics and you know, and it is something that you you talk about in the book, in addition to globalization, robotics, and, and I mean, the question is, who will create demand if we move in this direction? But I, I want to kind of tie it back to a point that you do make in the book, which is, you know, the African Americans were hit first back in the late 60s and the 1970s, and now it is it's, you know, um, white blue collars. And, and who knows where this goes next? It could very well go to the middle class. And one of the reasons is, is because of automation, not the only reason. And so, you know, it might, I think it would be useful for people on, on, on the platform to hear you kind of expand that and, 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 and develop that point some. I, mean, I have no particular reason to see why what happens in history would not happen again and uh, these jobs go away yeah. and in the end people have to go do something else but that doesn't stop it being an incredibly painful process so you know the handloom weavers in britain you know when the industrial revolution started out there was no increase in wages in britain for 50 years um from you know the end of the 18th century until the middle of the 19th and, you know, what everybody wrote about, the scholars and social scientists and everybody were writing about was, you know, the wage problem. You know, why will wages never go up? And the Industrial Revolution, you know, in its first phase, um, basically, you know, drove down wages until there weren't any handloom weavers left. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, maybe my friend Bob Allen at Oxford likes to say, that you know, wages started rising on the day that Marx published Das Kapital. <laughs> <laughs> so an example of being spectacularly wrong. But um, you know, there, there might be an element of that. Um, 
But I guess one of the points we're making in the book is we're not helpless before this. You know, why are we encouraging automation? Why are we subsidizing automation? Why are we making the conditions of work so much more difficult? Why are we charging so much for healthcare? So this rent-seeking by the privileged class um, is, you know, at the expense of ordinary working people. And we're making this thing much worse than it needs to be. Though maybe it needs to be bad. The question here about um, the absence of a kind of geographic explanation in the in the U.S. that um, you point out that this is it's not particular to the industrial Midwest. Um, so the question here is that I mean they would like you to expand on that, but what they're interested in is the connection between this group that is being disproportionately affected by the opioid crisis and Trump voters. So what is going on here? I mean, um, is it, um, it, it, it seems like it is this class of voters that he is, this group, uh, this cohort, that he is really drawing on. It's kind of like his core base. And I, I guess the question is, can you help us make some sense of this from Bernard Casey? Yeah, the the um, geographic dispersion, there is a certain pick your poison element to it. So, for example, in Mississippi, the death from, from alcohol is a bigger problem than drug overdose. And in West Virginia, drug overdose is a bigger problem than alcohol. Did I say alcohol in Mississippi, drugs in West Virginia? Mm. But, that, but everywhere these things are rising. On, um, on Trump voters, it, it is the case if you do this at the county level and um, you've got votes for Trump in the, two th in the 2016 election, it is the case that uh, all-cause mortality uh, was highest among whites in the age group we were then focusing on, 45 to 54. It's, we now look at everyone. Uh, that uh, all-cause mortality rates were highest um, in places where the Trump vote percentage were, was highest. But, but you can correlate Trump votes with a lot of things. Right? <laughs> so this is, this is just one, but you can look at trade uh, uh -huh. um, um, uh, composition. You could look at a lot of things. But I think that, um, I think that Trump is twofold. One part are wealthy people who care about a conservative Supreme Court and lower taxes and less regulation. And so he does have a, a well-educated elite in his corner. Right. And then as you mentioned, he has a base that really feels like they're invisible, they've been disrespected for a very long time, mm -hmm. and he speaks to that. And mm -hmm. I think that that's not going to go away mm -hmm. when Trump goes away. So this tyranny of the meritocracy, yeah. I think, is a very important part of the story. Right. And, you know, perhaps the defining single comment of the 2016 election is Hillary Clinton calling these people deplorables. Basket of deplorables. Basket of deplorables. Yeah. And if you want to talk about, you know, lack of esteem, <laughs> you know, lack of social esteem, lack of uh, meaningful work, um, then that encapsulates it. And a lot of people are very angry, not necessarily with our own lot, though that's part of it, but just seeing these um, 
you know, this, this exploitative elite that's rent-seeking on a huge square. And, and, you know, the Clintons were also seen as sort of great representatives of rent-seeking. I mean, the Clinton Foundation and all the rest of it, you know. So that uh, one of the things, very positive things about Joe Biden is he doesn't look that way. Right. But people who think the system is rigged against them, and indeed it is. Right. And, and Trump will say, yeah, the system is rigged against you. But, you know, in four years, it's not clear. Much is that. <laughs> right. yeah. So on that, um, another couple of, um, actually, we have a sixth form student, Carl Sherman, who has asked, were the stimulus checks the right response to help with deaths of despair? And so I think this is, you know, kind of more generally about like how government should be responding. And does this fuel the problem, solve the problem, putting money in, you know, people's hands this way, um, you know? So that's one question. And another question here comes from uh, Jack Basu Mellish um, and, he asked, is the issue, um, so this goes back to the labor question. Is the lack of labor representation partially a result of left parties, social Democrats, Democratic Party, labor, considering their core vote, the educated uh, BA liberals um, you highlight rather than the less educated workforce. So is part of the problem here the kind of the hollowing out of the, uh, you know, kind of blue collar base of the Democratic Party where they lost representation in, 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 in the party? I mean, this has something to do with the decline of organized labor and so forth. So two very different questions there. Yeah, the, the latter happened in Britain too. So that you yes. know, I often like to tell the story of Club Atlee's government, nineteen forty-five, which was full of unionists and people. There were seven members of the cabinet who started their lives hacking coal at the coal face, and so there was a direct line from working people to the corridors of power, and that line has been broken. There are fewer. Mm -hmm working class people ever in Congress in the U.S., but still, the, one of the loss of unions has been to break that link um, between ordinary working people and the corridors of power. And there are other things, too. The unions, you know, Alphabet spends more money in Washington than all of the unions put together. Right. And, you know, so there's very little representation in any form of working people. But also Piketty, in his latest book, writes about that, too, um, what he calls the Brahmin left, um, you know, and, and people like me, um, you know, who grew up fairly poor, um, you know, as we succeeded through the meritocracy, sort of we kept our leftist uh, positions while at the same time losing contact with the people that the left used to represent. And that would be true of Tony Blair and Gordon Bryan and many other people. Truman was the last president in the United States, not that would be a... Um, for example, and I think um, Trump and Biden and, and Harris are the first combination not to have an Ivy League degree <laughs> between them. Somewhere. But it certainly is the case when the Democratic Party decided they wanted to be a combination of uh, the, the uh, left elite 
and minority representation, that left no room for the white working class right. who were scooped up in part by a Republican party that doesn't treat them very well. Right. So there's, they were left really with nowhere to go. Right. And I think that also uh, led to the kind of anger that you, that you can, uh, that's palpable. That's right. Very important. Um, on the, the stimulus checks, I think stimulus yeah. checks were very important. They were a really, really good idea. But they were to do with COVID more than to do with right. deaths and despair. And, you know, before these stimulus checks went out, there were enormous lines in food banks and so on. So you had real distress on the streets. And there's real danger this will come back again. Um, in the next month or so, unless Congress gets its act together to pass something else. I don't think they were much designed with deaths of despair in mind. Um, Although the rhetoric, some, some of the rhetoric some from of the, the president was, we have to reopen the economy, otherwise people will kill themselves, which he had no basis to say. <laughs> but yeah. um, but the, COVID, the COVID, the stimulus checks were, uh, it's very odd to call it a stimulus because you deliberately crashed the economy. You know, right. <laughs> there. But um, a lot of it was just, um, you know, money to stop people being in terrible distress. So it was, you know, to keep body and soul together. It's also very important to keep the economy running because without that spending power, um, all sorts of other bits of the economy, like the food supply system and so on, could easily have broken down. Um, so th those were really good policy. Um, I hope we can repeat it at least to some extent. Um, and I know you're having similar problems in Britain with um, deciding what to do with the pay protection scheme. So, well, I've just been sent a, a, a list of, we've got viewers from, well, we have viewers from the US, Kurdistan, Turkey, Italy, India, Ireland, Pakistan, Argentina, Hong Kong, and Atlanta. There's a lot of terrain, we've covered a lot. This is, you're on the LSC platform. We've got three minutes left and somebody has just sent in a great kind of closing question for you to kind of bring us to the, um, to wrap this up. What was your aim when writing the book? So was it to explore a huge social issue um, that's having an impact uh, in the current US context? But I think the second question here really is, and is it, is it possible, you know, to turn this into some kind of call for action for U.S. citizens and even outside the U.S.? And I suppose the question is, is just on the basis of the kind of response that you've been getting, both, you know, kind of in universities, but I, I think in the public sphere, what you're getting back. I mean, is there just a, do you, you get a, do you feel like optimistic that there's really, it's getting traction. People want to address this problem. Politicians see it as a critical issue to go after. So we'll let you kind of like wrap it up there. You've got a couple minutes to work with. I think we wrote the book for the same reason that academics are always writing books. <laughs> we sort of like to write. Um, we'd find a lot of stuff that seemed really interesting and important. Yeah. Um, and I mean, and we really did want to reach a broader audience than yeah. academics, which is why we wrote it as more of a popular book. Yeah, because you talked to all love the you, yeah. but we wanted to get out farther than that. Right. Yeah. So we're not, you know, we're not activist organizers who are going to go out there and make this happen. And, and you know, there is, uh, sometimes I feel bad about that, but there's, 
appropriate specialization too. But when you ask that question, um, we can't avoid talking about the pandemic. So the reception of this book, you know, we published on March the 17th, um, which is probably the worst possible date you could conceivably. And, you know, there was all sorts of publicity. David Leonhardt, wonderful journalist in the New York Times, had prepared a lot of stuff based on the book, and that stuff went out and briefly propelled us into the New York Times bestseller list for, you know, 30 seconds. Um, but the Washington Post had done a big thing and a big coverage, and they made films and things, and then that was never shown. So it was certainly true the initial impact um, was much dulled by the fact that people had other things on their minds immediately at that time. And that's true for politicians too. We hope that the book will have legs and that um, people will continue to, you know, come back to it and look at these issues because these problems ain't going to go away. But I also think, I mean, for me, it was that the people that we're writing about are invisible to way too many people. Yeah. I just thought that um, we need to we need to bring out the fact that this enormous uh, fraction of the U.S. population is in so much distress that it's that these death rates are rising and rising and rising, and we it cannot be invisible. We every day we check the New York Times, or I do, to see how many more people died of COVID. Right. But uh, year in and year out, people will continue to die of these things. Well, thank you, ladies and gentlemen. It's been a it's been a great pleasure to have uh, the opportunity to listen to professors Case and 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 Deaton. And there's a um, the the book is well worth the read. I encourage you to purchase a copy. It's available online here at the LSC. Um, Anne and Angus, on behalf of the LSE, I want to thank you for taking time to share your research and your thoughts about, about this crisis and about America's future. They couldn't come at a more critical moment. To everybody out there, stay healthy, stay, stay safe, take care. Thank you. Thank you so much, Peter. It's a and real pleasure. Thank you yeah. for your very careful reading, too. Yeah. It made a big difference. Thank you. Thank you. Great to have you on.